one way is um, uh, let's start with some changes in the music. As you said, it went from the music that was the mentorship uh, coming out of the Paul Barber and Danny Barker period. You'd, suddenly they were playing pop songs from their period and were radio songs and written music. What was that shift, and the, well, who, whose idea was that? I mean, how did that catch hold? Well, Milton, Milton Batiste talks about that, um, and, and what he says is that that room being hired for parties, you know, and they'd show up to the party and, you know, essentially play what was considered the, the traditional repertoire, mm -hmm. and how people would look at them. And he gave an example of one event they did. He, this is in Mick Burns' book, um, Street Beat, Keeping the Beat on the Street. Um, and he talked about going to an event, and they played one set. And the people, I want to say, refused to pay him and actually told him, don't worry about playing the second set. You know, because it was that old standardized tradition of doom, 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 You know, I mean, what we could really consider that old, old style. Right. If you think about you know, the transition of brass band music coming from the marching bands, that military style, right. you know, coming up into the early 20th century um, with bands Excuse like... Excuse me, know, if anyone has any sizable uploading happening right now, please limit that bandwidth as it's slowing down the downloads for everyone else. Maybe that will fit in somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> um, forget where I was. Oh, that, so... You know, it was coming from, and then, you know, your early 20th century where you had, um, you know, your bands like your Eureka and your Majestic um, and your Tuxedo, et cetera, that were reading, you know, the music, you know, with, mm -hmm. with a little, you know, of course, there was that oomph to it, but they were mm -hmm. reading the music. Um, so going up until, you know, the 50s, those were still the cats who were the brass band cats on the scene, uh -huh. you know. Then in the, the 60s, you know, you started seeing a waning of the brass bands, it wasn't interesting anymore. And then there's cats like, you know, Milton Baptiste with Olympia, so and so, who grew up in a tradition, but at the same time realized that it was no longer attractive for their generation. Mm -hmm. You know. Um and he talks about being the you know, one of the first brass bands to kind of put the blues. You know, they started swinging the blues into uh -huh. using some of those popular elements of what was going on then okay. in the reaction that people would have. Okay. You know, and up in the beat a little bit. Yeah. You know, I mean, still playing that oomph, but just speeding the beat up a little bit. Uh -huh. You know, and then you, so you go from there, then you get to Danny Barker, who actually encouraged, you know, all the kids who he taught you, Leroy Jones, your Greg Stafford, your Tuba Fats, sure. you know, that whole two dozen people, you know, musicians he taught, you know, he encouraged them to add an element of themselves, right. an element that represented who they are, because the music is supposed to change. Yeah. You know, so. You know, what Barker, what Danny taught them was, again, a traditional repertoire, how to dress, how to act, you know, how to continue the ritualized traditions uh -huh. of the brass band. Okay. But musically, you know, essentially be able to play the trash stuff and put your own voice to it. Okay. So, you know, that's when we started seeing in the mid-70s with the Olympia, I would say probably led the way. You know, yeah. of hey, you can do something new with this music. Yeah. You know, and then start just add more and more and more of that popularity. We have the Dirty Dozen, who completely was like, you know that what? You know, I mean, they just completely flipped the script. Right. Same thing. They kind of kept that um. Yeah. But they were all about 
how to raise the energy of the people on the streets yes. at the second line. Uh -huh. You know, because the thing with brass band music is that it's it's very very participatory. Right. You know, so for a brass band musician, you're dependent upon the people that you're playing for. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I think that's one of the hardest things. If you ever go to a brass band performance, the first thing you can always hit up, what you'll hear consistently through the performance is, everybody get up, get up, you know, my feet don't. Mm -hmm. feel, we're not trying to encourage people, encourage people to dance. Yeah. Because if people are just standing there looking at you, nothing, not, yeah. nothing happens. And, and that's kind of what Milton, you know, was, was, was heading to in terms of, saying how people were reacting to just the old standardized traditional music. They're just looking at us. Yeah. They're not performing with us. They're not participating. They're just looking at us. Uh -huh. You know, and then you have the eighties revolution with bands like Rebirth, who was essentially mentored and encouraged by the Dirty Dozen. Right. Now we have the M T V generation. Yeah. You know, we have the, the, the you know, Michael Jackson off the wall, Prince, you know what I mean? Yeah. So now you have the dirt you you have the People like the Rebirth. Well, let me let me add one other point that's important also, which is another part of my research. Another thing that that nobody has talked, no scholar has talked about, is the role of marching bands uh -huh. with brass bands. Okay. So we can go back a little bit in terms of the pop the pop music. A great majority of brass band musicians, and I'd probably start this argument in the '60s uh -huh. because that's when. You know, we start to see oral histories where people referencing that they were in a, they started in a marching band somewhere, uh -huh. you know. Um, but most of the musicians in brass bands went through marching bands. What do marching bands in New Orleans play? Popular music. You know, yeah. they, you know, the, the marching bands in New Orleans, again, specifically the African American schools, have followed the tradition of the HBCUs. Uh -huh. You know, the historically black um, colleges and universities like FAMU, okay. Southern, Grambling, uh -huh. etc. Uh -huh. You know, and what their whole thing was was to play popular music. They want to entertain the people in the stands. Is that all the way through, or did that, did that start in the 60s too, or have they been playing popular music since the beginning, those, the, 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 the marching bands? The, the, I can't remember his name right now, but the director who was at FAMU. Okay. Started in the fifties, uh -huh. and he talks about you know starting in the the, the mid fifties. Okay, um, in the late fifties, the need to change from the standardized marches with the marching bands. Okay, and so that so influencing the popular music. Okay, so you might say then so that started, and then it took ten years before it, it started to plant itself in the brass in the brass band music. Exactly, coming off, yes. coming off of that. Okay. So I mean, e even like mahogany. So. When we started as Junior Pinstripe, uh -huh. and, and again, I would probably say this is the story for many brass bands, our repertoire was twofold. Yeah. So we started at St. Aubrey, yeah. uh, we were all in the band. Our repertoire was twofold. We used to rehearse at my house. We had to play traditional. Uh -huh. All my dad would let us play at the house was traditional or some dirty dozen covers. Uh -huh. But when we played for our peers, yeah. I think we're in high school. I mean, uh -huh. many of these cats, and I'm at, we're at a high school like, you know, St. Aubrey, where a lot of the students, you know, are more, how can I carefully say this, more suburbanite type of students. You're not talking about a whole lot of kids who came from Tremere, right. came from Uptown where they were going to second lines every week. Wow. So even when we started performing at talent shows and stuff in high school, it was a big thing of how do we get our peers to react to this music. Uh -huh. What did we do? We played the same songs that we played in the marching band uh -huh. with a brass band beat. Okay. So, you know, so we played songs like In the Stone by Earth, Wind, and Fire, uh -huh. you know, um, uh -huh. 
What's the song? The Diary of I can't think of the yeah. songs diner. You know, so you know these pop songs that we were playing in a marching band. We play those same songs with the brass band, except with, except with the, the, a brass band beat. That's the same thing the Reverb's doing, uh -huh. you know, because Reverb started at Clark. Okay. So that's where that basic idea of the record squad came from. Uh -huh. But I would argue that they were able to see the difference in the way that people reacted to the music, because it's the same type of music that you're listening to at the Mardi Gras parades. Right. Again, almost every kid, black, white, yellow, green, purple in New Orleans, goes to Mardi Gras parades. Uh -huh. what's, the, what's the primary thread that makes a Mardi Gras parade interesting? They can have the biggest floats in the world. It's the marching band. It's marching band. You know what? Do you think there's an urge then, uh, any urge that you're seeing out of, uh, I guess, musicians out of uh, Carmen's generation, I mean, rebirth people, that, uh, and, uh, to uh, provide the same mentorship to young, younger people in the, way that, in the way that it was provided to them by Danny Barker and people like that? I say yes and no. Uh -huh. I say yes is you do have a lot of musicians who are personally taking young cats under their wings. Uh -huh. I mean, you look at young cats, and I don't know all these young cats' names, but you look at cats like the Baby Boys, uh -huh. you know, who are related to the Andrews families and some of these Treme families. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they're, they're getting and have gotten that mentorship from those, those cats. Um, just this past week, and I've been observing this since 07, the musicians that are out playing on the corners out in Frenchman Street, yeah. you know, that big brass band that sometimes you might see 15, 20 cats. Yeah. So like this week, you know, this Saturday I was out there and there's Jack, who used to play with the Dirty Dozen, okay. you know, who's playing with him. Kenneth Terry, who plays trumpet. His oh, son is okay. playing snare drum now, okay. you know. So you have that sort of mentorship, but at the same time, it's not... It's not so much that community and communal mentorship right. that took place, yeah. you know. Um, so essentially, it's almost right place, right time of being some kind of way related to that particular environment. The other aspect of mentorship has become more of the more business orientated. And what I mean by that is you have a lot of organizations who have started programs like Preservation Hall. You know, right. they have a, a mentorship program yeah. now. You have the um, Historic Jazz Park. They have a mentorship program now. You have Derek Tab with Rebirth, who started Roots of Music, okay. um, who I think is a great example. He and I went to Bell together. Okay. I think he probably provides a, a the best example of the totality of the type of mentorship that has allowed the brass bands to perpetuate. Because uh -huh. he has the marching band element, he has the personal musician mentorship element, and now they've started a jazz and brass band element, you know. Um, because the kids, most kids get into the music through a marching band, you know. But the specific mentorship, it's scary, man. And, and why I say it's scary is, Danny Barker didn't have any agenda except to pass the music on. Sure. sure. And he passed the music in the in the cultural information and cultural knowledge on as he knew it. As he right. experienced it. You know, it wasn't textbook. No, but you know, the, yeah. this is this is a thing that, that I, I wonder about. I mean, I did know Danny Barker. I mean he's very encouraging to me too, mm -hmm. actually at the time, but oddly enough, although I'm not anywhere from that world, although I was playing with Kermit for two years at that point, but the, but the, but 
Danny is a guy who was very cosmopolitan. He came from being a, a, a musician all over America around the most modern or avant-garde musics as well as traditional mm -hmm. musics that there were. I mm -hmm. mean, he played with Ellington. I mean, there's nothing trad about Ellington. Yeah. The guy is a, a modern, a really modern thinker. And so he brought that back in. Now this is something, in other words, that means that his, the, 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 I got the feeling that the breadth of freedom of what he could provide to somebody that was asking the question, just because he had seen the world was a very widescreen place for him mm -hmm. in terms of his music, so this is something he can provide. And I wonder now whether this is really what what is being allowed to be seen or what's really being brought, like, you know, how do you pass that on in a world in which The world of the teacher is Frenchman Street. <laughs> I don't know what I'm trying to say here. No, it's no, just I'm, I'm I'm with you, and you know that's a going all the way back to the to the beginning of our conversation, asking about you know what did my committee at Alabama think of me researching dealing with this subject? Yeah. That's the heart and the breadth of my entire research. It's okay. just that, yeah, you know, because man, if you're gonna pass on, it's 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 not it's more than music. You know, and, and unfortunately, again, because New Orleans is concentrated on commodifying, exploiting this music and using it as a base of its, tour, its, its tourism marketing, you know, we forget that this music is of real time and of real people mm -hmm. and of real history. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not just music history, yeah. but it's cultural history, it's heritage, it's racial history. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, I mean, it goes all the way back to, you know, it, it goes all the way back to the hardships of slavery. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and this music, you know, of brass bands has carried those legacies and those stories with it. And the musicians still emote those hardships. Yeah. You know, that agony, that pain, yeah. along with the joy, uh -huh. along with the resilience every time they play. Uh -huh. And what we saw before Katrina is whether the band was playing a Michael Jackson cover yeah. or they were playing Maple Leaf Red. Uh -huh. There was something in that music something. that made you smile, laugh, and cry. Yeah. No matter what the song was. Yes. And I argue that it was the his, the, 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 his, the, the histories of that pain, agony, and joy. Right. You know, the most effective teacher. No, I, 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 I commend everything of who I've become to my dad. And now I'm blessed to have a little boy. There's only one one aspect of the population that can teach a boy how to be a man, mm -hmm. and that's a man. Uh -huh. You see what I'm saying? Yes. I don't care how strong you say a woman is. Mm -hmm. A woman can't teach a man how to stand up in front of the toilet and hold his penis properly. Yes. He, it, he requires a man to teach him how to be a man. Uh -huh. I use that same argument when it comes to cultural history and cultural knowledge, that you can take an outsider and what really made me become so passionate was once I started reading the history of this music for myself and the history of this city for myself. I mean, and not just taking it for granted, I mean, and not just reading the footnotes. But once I started really reading it, I realized how much of it, you know, how much of the history, how much of the story was bullshit. Yeah. You know? And it angered me. It made me sad. But it made me also say, man, it's my role 
to change this. You know, it's my role to do something. In, in terms of the cultural knowledge, a Danny Barker, he not only taught them music, he taught them life. And he taught them life based on that experience. He was able to teach them the hardships, what pitfalls. Danny Barker talked a lot about drugs. Yeah. And staying away from drugs. Yeah. You know, and, and et cetera, et cetera. So you have that form of mentorship. And and we're talking about Danny Barker, but there were many of them, you yeah. know. Um many of those type of cultural mentors. Then you look post Katrina, like you said, where has the primary mentorship become the corner on French mystery? Has it become bourbon and canal? Has it become bourbon and Toulouse? Yeah. You know, in front of the hotel? Um, or has it become institutions and organizations such as Jazz and Heritage Festival with Class Guy Brass uh -huh. and Preservation Hall? You know, because the, and, and though those are great programs, and I'm, I, I, I applaud them because as Jazz Studies Coordinator before Hurricane Katrina, one of my primary objectives that I was working with different agencies around town with was how do we implement brass band as a as a music making educational technique in every school. Every school that had a marching band should have a brass band. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But this but this is not mentorship. I mean, the, the difference, the thing that changes there is that you were taught uh, individually, one on one on one levels, and people once you institutionalize something. In other words, like it's a good, it's great, of course, for people to have an exposure to be mentored. Is a, is, a, is, a, is a slightly different educational model. That, that, that's where I'm going with it. So the mentorship has changed into being in an environment. Where someone can talk to you, and then it, you can learn to emulate. I see. It. But the, I, I think for me, the most fearful part is that again, think of all the scholarship that has been done about New Orleans jazz. Mm -hmm. How much of it's been written about local? I mean, written by locals yeah. or the musicians themselves, outside of autobiographies and biographies. Very yeah. little. You look at brass bands. I mean, in you know, with my literature review, with my research of, of, of other literature, there's been no brass band musician to write about the music that we make. Yeah. I say all that to say, it's virtually impossible, man. It's virtually impossible for someone who's never experienced. Now, I'm not saying don't know the, the knowledge, the musical knowledge, the music-making knowledge, but has that does not have the totality of the experiences yeah. of what it means to to not only create this music, but where this music becomes a vessel of person, this music becomes a vessel of self. Mm -hmm. It's impossible for an outsider to do that. Yeah, it's impossible. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. um, and I'm fearful that that's going to be one of the greatest detriments of this music. Uh huh. Because we don't have it in the communities anymore. Uh -huh. We have very few, you know, you have musicians, they're taking it upon their own, you know, just on, on their own. While they're still trying to survive fiscally, emotionally, you know, as an artist, traveling, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that cultural mentorship has been one of the greatest infrastructures that I think has been greatestly disturbing. Yeah. Well, it was interesting because uh, I mean, I went, I went out, uh, I was out last night walking up Frenchman, and oddly enough, there was the brass band on the street on the corner. There was a brass band in Maison. There was a brass band at Basso, and there was a brass band up at the, at the balcony music, but the BMC. Mm -hmm. 
And it wasn't like the old days. I mean, they're all very young guys, but they almost all sounded the same. Playing, they're they're playing purely, you know, the marching band music. Yeah. The, the guys from TBC in an interview um, that I watched online stated that essentially their training came from they were students at O'Perry Walker okay. and at Kennedy. Uh-huh. They needed musical instruments, so they went out on bourbon and just started playing the marching band music. And that's how they essentially started. Mm-hmm. However, throughout their entire history, they've never gotten that mentorship, and this is why I was going again with the insiders, mm-hmm. that teaches the totality of what okay. the music is. Yeah. You know, um, and TBC performed a few months ago for one of my cousin's funerals, passed away. And the totality of that cultural tradition is the way you dress, that there's a time and a place for everything, right. that you should know your religious and your spiritual repertoire, that you should know your traditional repertoire, mm-hmm. that you should know, you know, what you could almost call your old school pop yeah. repertoire, right. you know, um, and that you also know how to implement your own your generational own thing. thing into it. Yeah. Because these cats are now, and it's heartbreaking, and I, I could almost tell you a story that we talked about Saturday. I played Saturday at um, Spotted Cat right. with one of my new groups, and I don't know if I should or should. In my observations, man, and, and this, this is heartbreaking, and I take it seriously to heart. What I've observed since 2006 is watching these young cats. This music be, this music should be much more than just a tool for making music. Uh-huh. For me, and I give it to the brand, I give it again, you know, and it's not just me. I mean, you look at cats like Gregory Davis. It taught me, it taught me how to be a man. It taught me how to be a business person. Mm-hmm. It taught me how to take advantage of my agency and my cultural capital. Mm-hmm. It got me into college. Yeah. It got me a master's degree. Right. It traveled. The, it got me to travel the world. It allowed me to buy my first house when I was 21. Mm-hmm. What you real? What you see now is these young cats who look older than me, who are like 19, 20, 21 years old. That horn is that instrument is all that they have. Essentially, it's almost like they're hustling for the moment. Yeah, you know. Um, and a lot of them are falling to the perils of what mentorship normally allows you to avoid for most part, mm-hmm. which is the drugs and the, 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 the personal devastation, mm-hmm. you know. And just what I've observed is just almost a desperate situation that some of these young guys are in. Uh-huh. I mean, a lot of them are already strung out. Yeah. A lot of them are playing in the square or playing on the corner making enough money to get through the next day you know um, very few of them have been able to learn how to make this music a business and I think again when we go to the mentorship let's go back one generation to my generation look at the Soul Rebels Soul Rebels have been on the road since 2006 2005 What, what the mentorship taught us was much more than just the music it taught us the business. Yeah. It taught us how to take the greatest advantage of that music. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at your rebirth. I mean, you even look at your hot eight. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you look at your mahogany. 
you look at your Stooges. Yeah. Now all these are the, the young bands that you know we all kind of went high school around the same time or junior high school around the same time. We're talking about the bands that were formed in the early '90s and mid '90s. Mm -hmm. You know, and that was probably that last true generation of the totality of what I call that cultural immersion and cultural mentorship. Yeah. And if you look at what these bands have been able to accomplish and what they're still accomplishing, and you look at these younger bands like the TBCs, et cetera, et cetera, just even the presentation, the way they look. Yeah. You know, um, unfortunately the way they smell. And even the way they set up for gigs. Yeah. You know, and, and, it, and if, that, if that continues to be the main state I would even say for the next two years of grass bands in New Orleans, they're going to unfortunately erase all of what has been accomplished in the last eight years. If, and not even include way before that, yeah. but just in the last eight years. Because though Katrina was, you know, caused a lot of devastation, though Katrina um, hit and hurt all us in different ways, specifically, you know, the brass band musicians found a way to make a better situation out of that. Yeah. So let's see now, let's go, because you're actually working on something new, you were mentioning, and let's go at your new one, your, your newer bands, and obviously that takes a different form. And uh, let's talk about that, why, why you've decided to put, maybe it's related, I'm not really sure, but why you decided to put things in that form. Yeah, so so this, this, new, this new group that, that I'm working with is, it's called Esau Mueller, <coughs> uh, Esau Mueller's New Orleans Jazzum Band. Jazzum, which is one of those old Always. definitions of what was jazz. Yeah. Um, and it actually has a lot to do with who we're talking about. Because, but first, going back to the musicianship of the brass bands, I grew up in the brass band tradition, learned how to play in the brass band tradition. But that brass band tradition is closely related to traditional jazz. You know, what we would call with Michael White, Greg Stafford, Leroy Jones, Preservation Hall. You're playing the same record squad. You're just playing it in a different ensemble form. Um, and I've had the fortune of being able to, you know, branch out not only the brass band but with a traditional jazz. Um, and what I've done as a musician my entire life, essentially, has embraced my generational impact on my music. I've always found a way to stick in the music that represents my generation as a part of what we did. And that's what made Mahogany different. You know, we play true traditional. We were always known as the youngest traditional jazz band, mm -hmm. brass band in the city. But we added those little elements of funk that made it fun, uh -huh. you know, et cetera, et cetera. Again, I grew up with the mentorship of Tuba Fad, um, you know, Greg Stafford, um, Danny Balkan. You know, I really, when I started playing with Tremay Brass Band in the mid-90s, I had the opportunity of meeting and working with Danny Barker. And it was very impactful on me, you know. So with this new group, it actually takes the ideology of, say, a Danny Barker. Danny Barker was a showman. <coughs> Danny Barker would <coughs> would infiltrate all of his performances with all these stories, and a lot of these stories would just be these outlandish, you know, events, whether they were real or not. Who knows, you know? And that's the whole idea with the Easter Mueller, you know. Um, Easter Mueller is a, a, a fictional jazz character um oh he may not be fictional i would almost relate it to congo square uh -huh. is it is or is it not yeah uh -huh. you know so Esau Mueller is this 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 jazz character um 
who's completely like survived and outlived almost every other jazz musician. You know, he he learned from Buddy Bowden, but he tutored Louis Armstrong, but he fought in Vietnam and you know, drove a tank in Desert Storm and you know saved prostitutes in Storyville and you know helped Germany. Um, help the Germans build the first Volkswagen bug. Uh -huh. You know what I'm saying? So he's just like this all-around character. But the performance itself goes back to um, something that, that myself and some of the other musicians felt is lacking from the newer generations, which is the showmanship. Uh -huh. So we, you know, the, the whole performance is guided by stories. Okay. You know, uh -huh. all these adventures that, you know, Esau Mueller um, went on throughout uh -huh. his life and all the people that he was impacted by or impacted, uh -huh. et cetera, et cetera. But it reminds you of the old Danny Balker and Blue Lou Balker type of performance, uh -huh. you know. Uh -huh. And um, the performances that we've done, man, it's been amazing. It's actually taken the band by surprise because the way that the audience has reacted to it is yeah. something that we didn't expect. Right. And what I mean by that is we've essentially maxed out every place we've performed. Okay. I mean, people just love, I mean, they're in the palm of it, you know, they're in the palm of it. Um, and we have this little saying that we do as we tell the stories, what had happened was, you know, and by the middle of the set until the end of the night, um, you know, the whole, like, we played this past Saturday at the Spotted Cat. And I mean, you're talking about a couple of hundred people. What had happened was, you know uh -huh. what I'm saying? And I mean, yeah. we played the Spotted Cat, man. There was a line out the door. That's great. With people trying to get in. Uh -huh. You know, we played the Spotted Cat last Tuesday, <laughs> Tuesday before. Uh -huh. We're talking about a Tuesday night at six o'clock from six to ten. There was a line of people trying to get in. Yeah. You know, great. so it's it's something about it. But for me, I grounded in what I grew up with. You know, which is again playing with a cat like Tuba Fat. Mm -hmm. You know who had all these outlandish stories. Tuba Fatter fall asleep in the middle of a song mm -hmm. and then wake up right on the right note, you know, and wake up and say, hey man, give me a cup of orange juice. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know just that, that what made the music fun. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And it, it's a big difference from what I'm experiencing now, mm -hmm. going back to these general brass bands, because, I don't know, man. I don't know, man. It's, I gotta find, I need to find a way to explain it, but. I think that's an important element of what makes New Orleans music special, is that it's a it's, it is entertainment. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. I mean, I know there's an argument of should art be entertainment. You know, what classifies art? You know, our music is very artful, but it's very entertaining. And that's what has made this music so special. You know, just the New Orleans music period mm -hmm. is because it's it's entertainment. Yeah. You know, but if you take the entertainment factor out, then you're just playing music, and once you start just playing music, you know. You're not doing anything that's specially related to the law. Oh, it's very interesting. There's a, it might be interesting. There's a real, there's a long interview with Charles Mingus talking about, you know, when he was, when he toured with Louis Armstrong and when he toured the old guys from here. And, and, you know, he was trying to make, he was trying to point out the interviewer, the, the mentality that a lot of the musicians that he played with from where he was from was towards that, towards music from here and from guys from down here. And then, mm -hmm. and, and, Essentially, how it was a misguided uh, concept about it. He was talking mm -hmm. about learning to play in the manner that the guys down here played it, okay. and it's very interesting, you know, because another figure. But he's talking about he's talking about this as you know, when we say entertainment, because usually when you say entertainment, people that can cause some people to look down on it as mm -hmm. inferior, you mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. 
rather than look into the art of how that works. Yeah. You know, which is, but yeah. it's interesting. I just thought I'd just bring it up because I just was listening to it. It's a long clip on okay. here. I'm talking about it. Okay. So, okay. So, not, not to derail what you were saying. No, no. I, it, I mean, there's different ways that folks look at it. And again, you know, I'm someone who, you know, my first, you know, one of my first immersions into this music and in, in, in Ron's music was on the streets. Yeah. The second lines and playing in the square. Mm. You know, I mean, how do you, you know, how do you, what musicians make the most money hustling on the street in New Orleans? Yeah. Is it the ones who play a good solo and then put the hat out? Those are the ones that can make the people laugh. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and, and, and make them feel special. Yeah. And that's what the entertainment is. Like, this show is just for you. Yeah. I'm you playing this song just for you. You know, and that's a key word, connect. You know, yeah. um, what the, the, what we've had many people relate states with this new Esau Mueller group and something that's been a great legacy with Mahogany is that people have always commented on me in terms of how I connect people with, with my music. Yeah. You know, and strangely Saturday night after I play at Spot Cat, I'm just hanging around walking up and down Frenchman. And this guy walks up to me and he's like, Hey man, you played at my friend's wedding at the Wax Museum a few months ago. And I remember playing the wedding, I played with Storyville Stumpers. Um He's like, man, I just want to really thank you, man. Um, you're the trumpet player. He said, man, that, that performance was so fucking special. He's like, fair, man, I'm from Virginia. And, you know, my friend, oh, everybody from the wedding's from New York. You know, he's like, man, very rarely, and I'm a guitar player. And he's like, man, very rarely do you find a musician who you feel just has an emotional connection with everybody in the room, you know, and makes the music feel so special. And he said, man, you know, the band was rocking, but there was just this energy levitating towards you. And it's like, man, you were just connecting with everybody in the room, man. And we were all commenting on just how special that performance was, you know. That's something I learned from those old cats, you know. And, and, and that's an aspect of cultural mentorship that I think is very important. It's not just playing the instrument, you know what I'm saying. And again, I mean, we look at Louis Armstrong. What made Louis Armstrong a heartthrob to the whole world? It wasn't just the notes he played, you know, but he brought a sense of himself. Even his pains and his struggles, you know what I'm saying, on stage. Yeah. But he didn't have to preach to you to give you those pains and struggles. He could play, I mean, he could sing and play a song like Black and Blue, mm -hmm. but use certain inflections in his voice. Yeah. You didn't know what the hell he was singing about. Mm -hmm. He's talking about a, a, a rat pissing on cotton. Yeah. Yet you in the audience crying. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I feel... That's what makes the music special. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And that goes all the way back to how I mentioned, you know, what I remember from my earliest experiences with brass bands. Seeing people in puddles of water dancing. I mean, like they like they were caught up in some type of trance or something. You know what I'm saying? You know, there's something magical and something special, you know, about the music. Mm -hmm. And that's something I've always tried to, to tap into. And that mentorship that I received from those older musicians helped me to understand that. 